0: And that God is not silent. He still speaks. And he speaks primarily through his word, the Bible. And so when we open the word, we're listening to God. You hear that? I'm not God. I'm a mouthpiece. And my job as a preacher is to be faithful to the word. And our job as listeners is to submit to God's word and say, God, have your way with me. And so opening the word is a joy. Um, And I'm excited to open this particular passage for us. We have been talking about the various names of God that are found in in the Old Testament of the Bible in particular. The Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. It's 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. And in those books, God has a promise that's interwoven throughout it of him ready to send his Messiah, a deliverer who will come to save his people ultimately from the greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And in the New Testament, that is realized through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. And in the Old Testament, God reveals himself, um, and he gives himself himself different names for us to understand parts of his character. We've seen that God is our provider. He is our banner in war. He is the Lord of hosts. All the angelic armies are at his command. He is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Today, we're going to look at the name of God, Jehovah Tzidkenu or Yahweh tzitkenu, which means the Lord is our righteousness. Now what's unique about this passage is that it points forward towards the New Testament in some ways that other names of God haven't, which is why it gets me so excited to talk about it. The word righteousness brings to our mind this idea of God doing what is right or what is just, and he has a way that is holy and a way that is, that is not uh, is, he opposes. God, God will do what is right. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God having uh, attention toward these matters of injustice in society. Uh, matters of unrighteousness bother him throughout the Old Testament. And I think sometimes we um, forget that God is angered at the sight of injustice in any society. Um, I hope that you and I have, have that same kind of anger when we hear or see injustice in our own day. And when, whenever you hear of human trafficking, that, that it should cause you to be angry. Or when we hear about the unborn lives being taken without rights. When, when we hear of systemic injustices or racism in our, co- our country. Sexual abuse of children. These things should anger us. We should become angry when we hear of so-called preachers exploiting the poor to get their own wealth. We should be angry when we hear of women in our country being taken advantage of, harassed, and abused. That, that should anger us. We should be angry when schools are, are struggling and they're in this perpetual cycle of being stuck, and then we expect our kids to come out and have different results than the schools have had. I mean, th- th- these are matters of injustice in our own society, and we could go on. And some of us here today have been those who've experienced injustice, maybe in some of the ways I've mentioned, maybe in other ways. What I love about the name Jehovah Tsidkenu is because it reminds us that God cares about these matters. God is not indifferent toward injustice. This name of God brings to mind other names of God. Like the Bible says, he is the judge of all the earth. I love that. He is uh, the Lord of peace, who brings peace in the midst of chaos. He is our, our, the Lord is our shepherd who leads us beside still waters when all is crazy in the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, so the Lord, our righteousness, brings to mind all these other names of God. And we see it show up here in Jeremiah 23. In order to understand this, we've got to understand the context of this story. Because we're going to see in this story that God has a once-for-all plan to do what's right. But we've got to see the kinds of things that made him unveil this plan. The nation of Israel are called God's people. He is their king. He was their leader until we see in the book of 1 Samuel, God's people saying, you know what? We want a king like the rest of the nations. And God gave them their heart's desire. He gave them a king named Saul and then a king named David, who was the right king of Israel, who did what was right. He wasn't perfect. We know his flaws, but he was one who came back and when he sinned, he asked God for forgiveness. He repented and he tried to leave with righteousness. In fact, 2 Samuel 8.15 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Sometimes we might forget that King David was not only a writer of Psalms, he was not only a great warrior who slayed Goliath, but he was also a good king that cared about injustice and wanted to be a, God who, uh, a king who executed justice toward his people. Well, after David died, his son Solomon became king, and Solomon had a mixed life, and after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king, and under Rehoboam's leadership, the kingdom was divided into two, and it became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and every king in Israel from that time forward was wicked and did what was wrong. They practiced injustice and unrighteousness. And the majority of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah were the same way. But a handful like Hezekiah or Josiah. But the majority in Judah were wicked. And so we come to Jeremiah 23. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. And now the southern kingdom of Judah is ready to lose their own rights to Babylon in 586 B.C. And Jeremiah is here prophesying around 600 saying, Hey, look, it's going down here, guys. There's a problem in our nation. And it starts with the top. See, King Josiah lived in Jeremiah's day. Josiah was a good king, but he came to a tragic end. He gets struck by an arrow in war. He dies suddenly. His son comes in his place. His son is nothing like his dad, his son is wicked. And every king after that is wicked. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, God has a word for the sons of Josiah, the wicked kings who finally come to the very end of God's patience. God tells him in chapter 22, verse 13, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, talking about the king, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages. He says to himself, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion. And then God tells the king this, do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? God's like, I'm I'm done with you kings of Judah. You think you're a king because you live in a big house, but that doesn't make you a king. He says, your father, Josiah, was a great king because he practiced justice. And so now the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is ready to look at its end in Jeremiah chapter 23. And God is upset, to say the least, with the kings and the leaders of of his people He tells them in chapter 23, as I read already in verse 1, he says, whoa, that's judgment to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Basically, God has a bone to pick with those who abuse or abdicate their authority. God has a bone to pick with those who abuse or abdicate their authority. And here the leaders of his people are doing that very thing. And I love what God says. He says, you destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. God's like, you you forgot something really important here. These are not your sheep. They belong to me. They, they, They come and graze on my pasture, and I have given you the privilege of shepherding them. But instead of seeing that privilege, you have abused it. You have abdicated your responsibility. You've neglected my people. My people are victims of injustice because of your poor leadership. God has a bone to pick with them. He says, you've destroyed and scattered the sheep. He says in verse 2, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. See, they've abused them by pushing them away. They've taken advantage of them, and they've abdicated their responsibility by scattering them. Say, oh, you're not my problem anymore. Ezekiel, in the book of, uh, book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, he gives a similar word to the shepherds. Here, here how Ezekiel says it in chapter 34, verses 2 and following. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You're enjoying the sheep. But you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The loss you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered, God says, over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I mean, do you hear God's, God's sorrow and grief? These are my people. These are my people that I redeemed out of Egypt. Egypt. With my mighty hand and outstretched arm. These are my people that I sustained in the wilderness for 40 years. These are my people that I gave this land of promise to. And now they're scattered and you're not even looking for them. They're just out there. God has a word and he's got a bone to pick with these shepherds, these leaders in the nation of Israel, Now, you and I may not be kings or national leaders, but we must understand, too, that God has entrusted people to us. Whatever your role or responsibility in the church or, or anywhere else is, we've got to have a mindset that within the family of God, we, we are God's people. We are his sheep. And he's entrusted sheep to us. I know as a pastor, this is a, a burden something that me and the other pastors carry. We, we oftentimes feel stretched beyond our own abilities, which is why we try to raise up other leaders to help in the task. Some of you are aspiring pastors, and I hope there are uh, several in this room who are in that place. You must understand that, that God has entrusted sheep to us. Some of you are disciple makers. I hope actually all of you are. You have sheep. If you're a parent, your children, your child is your sheep. If you're a spiritual parent, if you're a youth leader, we've got sheep and responsibilities to care for them to the best of our ability, as imperfect as we are, as hard as it is. And oftentimes we've got to say we're sorry for our failures and shortcomings, but nonetheless, we need to care. But here, God in particular, though, is upset about those who take advantage of the sheep, or those who abuse people. I mentioned how in our own day, we've got various societal injustices where people are taken advantage of. I really do hope that our hearts ache when we hear these things, that we don't go calloused or numb to it. Last, uh, last year, I believe it was, one of our sisters here at the Brook was sharing with us about the plight of human trafficking, not just global, although certainly global, but even here in Chicago. It, it should irk us. It should, it should anger us when we hear of that. We were told that many cases, in most cases, prostitution is a form of human trafficking. It's not like our young girls want to do that, but they're being taken advantage of by, the, by their society, by their neighborhoods, and they've got no other way out. We must plead the case of the unborn. We live in a country that legalizes abortion. And family, this should hurt us because we believe life begins at conception. And God gives and grants life. Now, I know there are challenges around some pregnancy. I know that there are are many, many hurts that that surround this family. I want to acknowledge that. And I know perhaps some of you uh, maybe even have encouraged others to do that or yourselves have had abortions. And we want you to know that God is a God who forgives. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He is a God who redeems. And so we, we want to we just lock our arms and love on you. We also want our, our society to know and the church to know that God does have an opinion about that. And he values life. Our hearts should ache when we see injustices I mentioned in our broken communities in particular, the school systems, I, I admit I haven't got answers, but it still angers me, and I'm like, Lord, what do we do here when our worst neighborhoods are, have overcrowded classrooms, and our best teachers have a hard time teaching there, sometimes no fault of their own, and even when they want to stay, they haven't got the resources, and then we have these young men and women graduating, and then we expect them to be different than what they were trained. like, that, that's not going to work. And so we, that's, that should hurt us. And man, if God has called you to be in politics, man, do it for the glory of God. And if you got answers to that, bring it, please. But we, we should be those who advocate for when we hear about racism in our own neighborhood, in our own city, people being judged because of their skin color. That should hurt us. We should grieve. We should shed tears for our brothers and sisters. We may not know their plight, but we must learn to empathize with their hurt. When women are taken advantage of. I just, you know what's going on in the Supreme Court right now, and I, I, I'm not even making a judgment on that, but what I'm saying, if this, these things, when they happen, if they're real, family, that should hurt us. And women should never feel a. Afraid to speak the truth because how they'll be received in our country. And we pray that you would know God's healing, sisters, if that if you've been exploited or abused or assaulted in any way. There must be recourse. We've, we've got to care about justice. Reason number one, because God cares about justice. I love how Dr. Martin Luther King said in the letter to in the Birmingham Jail. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat against justice everywhere. This is true, family. We may not be experiencing it in our own life. This is what happens when we ourselves don't experience injustice. We become cold and callous towards those who are. And we're thinking, I'm not experiencing it. Let let them deal with it. As if it doesn't involve us. God says, these are my sheep. And if we are part of the flock, it should involve us. So Dr. King is right. Injustice anywhere is a threat against justice everywhere. If it goes unaddressed, it will only spread. So we must care about it. Not, you need to ask God to pray, pray. Ask God for eyes to see it. And if you've been callous, repent and ask God to forgive you for being callous towards injustice, making excuses. We, we've got to have compassion on the weak and not let our political views dictate our theology of compassion, our theology of justice. We, we don't stand in any political party, Brooke family. Jesus is our king. And we've got to hold that. We have no allegiances to any other party now, we may have political views. We have that. We're unique people. God has given us that. But let's not forget what informs our decisions. God's not concerned about what the sons of Josiah believed politically. God's got a bone to pick with them because they abused and abdicated their authority and the responsibility given to them to care for people and to be one who advocates for justice. So what God says there in verse 2, he says, Behold I will attend to you now for your evil deeds. Hear that. God's like, you're not visiting my people, but I'm going to come and visit you. I'm going to come and address you. God has a bone to pick, and he's going to do it and hold them accountable. But then what I love what God does is he's not indifferent toward his sheep. He's not just mad against the leaders, but he's saying, I'm going to do something for my people. And look what he says in verse 4. He says, I, let me actually go back to verse 3. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God's like, I'm going to gather my people back, and I'm going to set new shepherds over them. Before I unpack that, notice what God says. He says in verse 2, he says, you've driven my people out. But look what he says in verse 3. I'm going to bring them back from where? He says, from where I have driven them. So the question is, who's driving who here? Did Did the wicked kings of Israel drive God's people out? Or did God drive his people out? And the answer is yes to both. You see, God drove his people out because, yes, the leaders were corrupt, but he also holds the people responsible for their own turning away from him. And time and time again, prophet after prophet told the people of Israel, come back to God. And they pushed them away and turned to idols. And God's like, you know that I said, when you follow me, there are blessings, and when you resist me, there are curses. Now God is using his hand to execute his discipline on his children and also on these shepherds, but God's like, I'm going to bring them back, though, and I'm going to bring new shepherds over them. See, God God is not only there to help them for the moment, but to help them for the motion that follows. God doesn't just help us in that time of need, but helps us through it and continues to help us as we lean on him. So if you are one who's been wounded by injustice in our society, our culture, your family, I just want you to know you have a God who's gathering you to himself. Say, hey, come to me. Come to me for healing. Come to me for hope. And I'm going to guide you. I'm going to set a shepherd over you to lead you. And he does that through the community of faith. The immediate application is what God would do is uh, after he sends his people out to Assyria who got conquered by Babylon, then Persia, God would bring his people back into the promised land. And he sent people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and other whose names aren't known to us, to care for them. God's faithful to watch over his people. But notice here in verse 5, God has more than an immediate um, concept in his mind here about him caring for his people. He says in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming. That kind of language is like, hey, it's not happening right away. This is distant. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice, amen, and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. See, what God says is, you know, as broken as our, our, our society and culture is, he tells God's people, God tells the people, I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'll give you leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah and others. This is good, but days are coming. Well, I'll do even better than that. And I'm going to raise up, he calls, a righteous branch. This is taking language from Isaiah 11, where God brings destruction, and it's like he tore down the trees, but there's still yet a branch left. There's still a glimmer of hope. God is not completely done with his people. And from that branch will raise up one who will be their deliverer. And to be specific, he says this first of all. This is the first thing I want you to see. That this branch is your king. Is our king. He said, I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as King. Notice, there are no other righteous kings to follow in Jeremiah's prophes- uh, prophesying. It's speaking of a future king who is a righteous branch which calls to mind the words of Luke 1. When the angel Gabriel visits Mary, he says to Mary, hey, the one in your womb will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne Of his father David. And then Gabriel says this, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, these words of Jeremiah 23 are fulfilled in no one else other than Jesus, the great King of Kings. He is our King. And so when we look at a society that's broken and there is corruption not just in our nation but throughout the world at the most minuscule level and beyond, we have the hope that Jesus, our king, who has come once to deal with sin, is going to come back to reign forever. He is our king. And as king, Jeremiah says that he will deal wisely and shall execute justice And righteousness in the land. Jesus will bring a day when all injustices will cease. No more abuse. No more more systemic injustices on, on kids and communities who have no way out. No more racist comments. No more taking advantage of the weak. There's coming a day where our king will reign. And will execute justice once for all. I look forward to that. He is our king, first of all. Secondly, he will execute justice over evil. The evil perpetrators will be judged by a righteous God. And thirdly, he will cause his people to be saved and secure. Notice what he says in verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. God's got a future plan for Israel, the nation of Israel. I firmly believe that scriptures like these and others teach that. But what's so beautiful is that we who are non-Jewish people are being grafted into God's plans here. And so we get to enjoy the fruit of God's redemptive plans for his people, Israel, as well for his church. And all are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And so he will cause us to be saved and dwell securely, which is why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep who are not Israel. I must bring them also. And they will also listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Praise God. We have a hope in Jesus that goes beyond this life. What I love is what Jeremiah is doing. He's pointing people beyond the now so yes god god cares about injustice but god is also at work to accomplish his plans for eternity here and there will come a day where it's all done and all sin will be judged and and the wicked will be cast away and for me i find hope that those who are evil will not go without having an answer to god but what do we do when we are the wicked So we're all for God executing judgment on the wicked. But what what do we do when you are the wicked, the rebel, the one who sins against a holy God? You, You see, in Romans 3, it says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless and no one does good, not even one. So now what do we make of this? Where we stand before a just God who justly judges the wicked when we are the wicked. Or as Ephesians says, you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's the, the spirit that is now working his sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. But what, what do we do when we are by nature children of wrath? As Paul says. We're all for the Lord who is righteous, but what if we're the ones who need judgment? You see, family, the Bible says that from birth we have been born separated from God. We've got a sinful nature. We are apart from God, and by our actions and our words and our lives, we've, we're separated. And unrighteous people cannot dwell eternally with the holy God. There is a gulf a gulf. That exists between us and God. What do we do, family? I love what Jeremiah says here. He says in verse 6 the name which he shall be called is the Lord our righteousness. He's not just the Lord who is righteous, although he is that but he is the Lord, our righteous. Let me, let me break this down for you. In, in the 16th century, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, was coming to the scriptures realizing that he was a sinful man. And whenever he sees that God is righteous, he's like, then I'm condemned. I've got nothing. How can I stand before a holy God? And whenever he saw the righteousness of God, it caused terror for him. It caused terror. Until he began to understand That God is not only just in executing judgment, but he is also the one who stands in our place. As Paul says in Romans 3, he is both just and the justifier of those who trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. Why? So that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. He is our righteousness. He's not just a righteous God. He is our righteous God. So when God sees us, he just doesn't see our rebellion, but we put our faith in Jesus. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son. So what do we do when we're the wicked? We run to God who is merciful. And we say, God, take my sinful garments. And God says, here, take my righteousness. I'm clothing you for all eternity. Anyone the son sets free is what? Is me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What happens to the old is gone, The new has come. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in us. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. He will execute judgment. But he's also stood in the place of his children. What a merciful God we serve. So when he comes back riding his horse and he brings an end to all this, we who are found in him will reign with him forever and ever. Jehovah said Kenu, the Lord our righteousness. He is a righteous God who's got a bone to pick with those who abuse and abdicate their authority. He's also a God who steps in to gather and guide his people. And he does have a once-for-all plan to make things right. He's going to come as a king. He is our king. He reigns now as king, but he's coming back. And he will execute justice over evil, save us, secure us for eternity, and cover us with his righteousness. Hallelujah. If you come today and you feel the weight of your sin, and the idea of a God who judges wickedness terrifies you because you know that your actions, your life has pushed God away, I invite you today to come to him. Say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I embrace your cross of Jesus. I believe he died on my behalf so I don't have to take the punishment. He took it for me. Would you just cry out to him, ask for his forgiveness, turn away from his sin, and know what it means then to be forgiven. He is a righteous king, but he is our righteousness. And if you are a child of God today, I need to remind you, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So you go go out and live in this world for God's glory. You let the world see what it's like for someone who is changed by God's mercy. You go out and be one who advocates for the things that concern God, that matter to Him. And that we would all look for the day of His appearing with anticipation. Because He is the Lord our righteousness. Let's pray for Him. God, I thank You, Lord, for doing what only You could do, God. creating a way for those who are so far to be part of your, fi- your family, God. I thank you for Jesus, the good shepherd, who has laid down his life for his sheep, who has taken our sin upon him and in exchange given us his righteousness. God, thank you. You are so good to us. So Lord, may the words of our mouth be lifted up in thanksgiving. God, may our hearts experience your healing. May we have passion for matters of justice that you care about. Let's be those, God, who stand on the kingdom of your son, Jesus, and say, Lord, do what you would for your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.